And now will you open your Bibles to our sermon text, which is the single verse, Deuteronomy 5, verse 16. Deuteronomy 5, 16. We will follow this up with an illustration from the life of our Lord Jesus Christ in the 19th chapter of John's Gospel, beginning at verse 17. Deuteronomy 5, 16. And we'll go to John 19, beginning at verse 17. Hear then the word of God. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. John chapter 19. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word. Let me begin today by calling your attention to a point that by now should probably be glaringly obvious to you. 
that God's law, which is recapitulated for us here on the plains of Moab, God's law is a code of human conduct that is both deep and wide. It encompasses, God's law encompasses and directs the full range of human experience. And as it does, it also searches the deep places of the human heart. We've been chipping away at this book of Deuteronomy for six months now, ever since the middle of July. And here we are in mid-January, only halfway through the fifth chapter. But let me say, it is altogether right and proper that we should take God's law slowly and deliberately because of what's at stake. We might liken God's law to a straight West Texas railroad line that runs in two and only two opposing directions. The way of God's covenant blessing and the way of God's covenant curse. There is no third way that this track travels. No third way that's open to us. His law takes us either quickly downhill to hell for our daily transgressions of it, or it takes us directly to Jesus. Because Jesus, having attained heaven by his perfect obedience to this law nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus today sits upon his glorious throne at the far end of the line, at the far end of those ancient paths, those good ways of which Jeremiah spoke, the far end of every Christian's pilgrimage. Our Lord Jesus Christ has been over this very same road before us. He knows the root of obedience. He understands it. He understands the many painful, perplexing hardships along the way because he's traveled every inch of that road, every inch of that line before us. But we might even go a little bit farther and say that uh, by the relentless energy of Jesus' perfect obedience to this law on our behalf, by that alone, otherwise lost and perishing sinners like us, we are carried uphill, up Zion's hill, to glory. We don't get there by ourselves. Didn't he himself say, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. The work of our salvation is his. If I attain heaven, and thanks be to God, he's promised that by grace through faith I shall If I attain heaven, it's not going to be on the strength of my own paltry, on-again, off-again obedience. 
If we consider the all-searching breadth and depth of God's holy law for human conduct and our daily flouting of it, and if we have no buffer, no shield to stand between this holy God and ourselves, perceiving no righteous redeemer from this desperate moral debt that we have, if we perceive no Christ to mediate for us, to advocate for us at the bar of God's justice, if we believe instead that our own personal obedience to this law is the point upon which my eternal life stands or falls, then we are of all men most to be pitied. Because we're sunk. We're sunk. All men are. God's holy law searches and judges and destroys the sinner. So, beloved, you must come to know this Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You must. You must, by faith, make him yours. It's the fool who sees the storm of judgment coming and doesn't run to hide himself in the cleft of this rock. Not long before his own death, Moses renews God's gracious covenant with Israel there on the cusp of that long-awaited inheritance. Canaan, the promised land, the land they had waited for, it's right there. It's standing before them. It's within their sight across the river. Now, the fathers of that generation, you remember, first received this law back at Mount Sinai in the desert. Here in Deuteronomy, the children of that generation are receiving it again. They're hearing it again. And truth be told, every generation needs to hear this law. Every generation needs to understand it, needs to take it to heart. Every generation of humanity, right down to ourselves and our children. Because if this law that we are studying, if this law were to be lost, then with it we lose the sense of our own clear and present danger as transgressors of it. If God's law were lost to us, then we lose our yearning, our desperate yearning for the Savior, the God-man, the one person who's really and truly up to the job of saving sinners like us. If we lose our sense of the law, we lose the urgency of the gospel. So as we open our books to the our Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, let's bear in mind that here speaking to us is the one living and true God who brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. It's addressed to us. Having by sheer grace redeemed us, he now owns all the rights appertaining to a redeemer, added to the rights naturally due him as our 
creator. And I'm speaking about the rights of ownership. So now, in light of our redemption, he owns us not once, but twice over. His rightful claim on us is total. It's total. Let us, therefore, have no other gods before him. Let us, therefore, not make for ourselves an image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. Let's not worship them or serve them, for this magnificent God who first created us, who then redeemed us, who addresses us now as our covenant husband, he is a God jealous of our covenant love. He brooks no rivals. As his chosen bride, we've taken his name. Let's not take it and bear it before the watching world in vain, but live our lives in the transparent truth and boldness of Christ. Let's discover in him all our Sabbath rest. Cease our striving. Depend upon him. And know that he is God. These things that we covered in the first four commandments really aren't difficult things to understand. They're really not all that difficult even to do. They're profoundly simple things he commands of us. The simple things that describe our Christian freedom. It's about freedom. The fifth commandment that's before us today, in a sense, bridges this first table of the law with the second table of the law. This fifth commandment has one foot firmly planted in the first table, honoring God our Father himself, because it teaches us to reverence the ambassadors that he himself has appointed over us, both in the home and in society. And then, with the other foot, this fifth commandment reaches forward into the second table of the law because these ambassadors that God appoints over us are, in fact, our own flesh and blood. They're our closest neighbors whom we're to love as ourselves. So here's the bridge between the loving service that we owe to God as God and the loving service we owe to one another as men. The fifth commandment stands exactly where a bridge ought to stand, in the middle of the dividing river, spanning it. That's the function, one of the functions of this fifth commandment. Now, there are three aspects of this commandment deserving our attention today. These three things answer the basic questions. First, what the commandment is, and then to whom it applies, and finally, why we should care. Or if you prefer, they address the matter of our obligation, the concept of office, 
and the outlook for the future of a society that honors those placed over them. The Apostle Paul, after all, in his letter to the Ephesians, calls this fifth commandment the first commandment with a promise. So first of all, what obligation does God place upon us in this commandment? What obligation? What he commands is honor, respect toward those he sovereignly appoints over us in this life. He commands it. These are my representatives in the home. These are my representatives in human society. Ascribe to these people all due weight. That's what the word signifies in Hebrew. Give them all the weight. Ascribe to them all the weight that is rightfully theirs. Even all the due glory. I want you to think through this with me and think about your own circumstances and the circumstances of those you know who are dealing with difficult situations. Because genuinely honoring our parents doesn't come easily to a generation of people who are accustomed to being satisfied with mere externals. (coughs) God who knows the heart commands that we actually Respect others, beginning with our parents, that we honor them, that we honor them not merely externally, but from the heart that we honor them. In other places, he commands even that we love others from the heart. He commands it. And not merely in an outward show of something that isn't inwardly there. He he exercises divine authority over those inward volitional powers of the human soul. Even those emotional parts of our soul that we might rather wish he couldn't see into. But he can see into you. He does see into you. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost see it all. Now this searching x-ray scan into our hearts and souls is a problem. It represents a problem for a lot of people, including some people who are right here in this room with us today. How can he tell me to honor my father and my mother? Doesn't he know my father and my mother? Isn't he well acquainted with their sins? Isn't he well acquainted with their annoying habits, their unreasonable demands, even in some cases their abusiveness? Doesn't he know? 
How can a righteous God possibly expect me to honor them? Wouldn't that just be another piece of hypocrisy demonstrating something outwardly that isn't actually there within me? Beloved, if we stumble at this fifth commandment because our relationship with our parents isn't everything it should be, we do well to go back and slowly review the previous four commandments. The God who is speaking to us here is God. He alone is God. We bear his name. We ought to bear his likeness. We rest in his judgments, all of which are true and righteous altogether. He can tell us to honor our father and our mother because he knows both them and ourselves far better than we do. It's not a problem for him to tell you, to tell me, look, this is the right thing to do. So do it. Honor your father and your mother. Yes, even them. But listen, regardless even of the personal character of your parents, with all their faults and shortcomings that only you would know from all those unguarded, all those unhappy moments that take place in a family, regardless of their character, here's what the commandment requires. That by your own conduct, you make it your aim to add to the weight of their glory. Whether that's currently little or much, it is your responsibility to add to the weight of their glory. The commandment, after all, is for you in your role as the child. Clearly, you are not in charge of your parents, you're not responsible for their behavior. But are you in charge of you? Whether you're a child of two years old or of 12 or 20 or 60, the question is, what do I, by a life well lived, by a life honorably lived, what do I add to the peace and comfort of my parents and the glory of the family name which I share together with them? What is my behavior doing to add to the glory, such as it is, of the family name? Because like it or not, the family is the Lord's institution. It's the Lord's institution, the first and foundational one. The family is the ground floor of all civilization. So if we get the family wrong, then everything else that's built upwards in human civilization, everything built upwards from the family is also going to be, in some measure, wrong, unstable. We must therefore do everything within our power to strengthen and establish our own families. Strengthen and establish our own families.
That's the call of God upon us. So, beloved, can we resolve together here and now that the blame shifting that so often goes on within families, that it stops here today, now. That it stops here today with you and me. That we resolve no longer to shift the blame on the way the family is on others. We do what we can by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. Let's acknowledge together that with one exception only, neither parent nor child has ever gotten this foundational matter 100% right. Think of the families of the patriarchs. They're a mess. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and it's only by grace that we're saved from the sin of shifting blame to others. The Old Testament, of course, you remember, ends, closes, with the expressed hope and promise that the hearts of the fathers would be restored to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Which must have seemed to be a pretty forlorn hope at the time that promise was made. Considering how messed up so many families were at the time, so many divorces, all those mixed marriages, all this pervading sense in the culture of being off-kilter, off-center as a nation, spiritually broken, lacking apparently a future or a hope. What an awful time to live those days of the prophet Malachi. And the Old Testament ends with that promise about a restoration between father and children, children and father. And then we turn that dark page of Malachi and we find ourselves in the blessed gospel. And here on the very first page of that gospel is the record of a family, fathers and sons. And that record ends with the coming of one who represents genuine hope for the family. Hope for the lost world. As the Apostle Paul wrote the Corinthians, reflecting on the 49th chapter of Isaiah, as he was at the time, Paul writes, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Whatever was true of your family yesterday or on the day of your last argument or five years ago or 25 years ago in Christ today is a new day and you are a new man A man by sheer grace adopted into the family of God. And the world in which you live is, by the grace and power of the gospel, 
being renewed. I exhort you, brothers and sisters, don't let yourself become a victim of your own past. Yours now is the grace and power of the Holy Spirit to honor from the heart your father and your mother. That's the obligation we're under. But there's more to understanding this matter of honoring others, in part because human society has taken us so far beyond the four walls of our own home. To whom is this honor due? That is, what offices are encompassed by the terms father and mother? On its face, the commandment looks pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Father and mother, you and I have them, one each. But then as you read in your Bible, you find those terms broadening out. You find them encompassing more, far more than mere genetics. The prophet Elisha, for instance. You remember him calling out to Elijah as Elijah was spirited away into heaven in the chariot of fire. The words of Elisha, my father, my father. But Elijah wasn't his father, at least not in the usual biological sense. Then years later, you read of Israel's King Joash speaking to this same Elisha who is now on his deathbed and saying to Elisha, my father, my father. But Elisha wasn't his father, not in the usual biological sense. We read in Judges chapter 5 of the prophetess Deborah calling herself a mother in Israel. And we read in numerous places of Old Testament seminary students called the sons of the prophets. But they weren't necessarily so, not in the usual biological sense. Earlier still, of course, you remember Joseph calling himself a father to Pharaoh which in the biological sense, of course, he wasn't at all. Timothy, according to the apostle, was Paul's own true child in the faith and beloved son. Except that he wasn't actually biologically so. So the farther on you read in the Bible, the more apparent it becomes that the fifth commandment addresses us not only as, individually, uh, as individuals in the home, but as office bearers in all of these so-called inferior-superior relationships of life, not just the biological ones. Now, superior-inferior isn't a distinction that we necessarily like to make between people in this egalitarian age in which we live, but it's a very true distinction. Because this is how God made the world and it's how he made our relationships in the world. There are superiors. There are inferiors. There are equals. 
You and I have God-given superiors. We have our social equals. We have even God-given inferiors. And I'm sorry to have to put it that way. You won't learn this in the public school system. You won't hear it in the media today. But it's true. Society has this thing called structure. And it's a structure more than one level deep. There are parents and there are children. There are masters and there are slaves. There are lenders and there are borrowers. There are teachers and there are students. There's the king of kings and the lord of lords. And there are servants of servants. Here in the U.S., we've been sitting for a long time on this precarious fence, operating socially and politically as though two contrary propositions regarding equality can both be true. And the shifting winds that we've experienced over the last 250 years have caused us some pretty awkward moments in history as a nation. Our Declaration of Independence, of course, in 1776, considered it self-evident that all men are created equal. Thirteen years later, Article 1, Section 9 of our Constitution, on the one hand, forbids any citizen a title of nobility... Yet, for our first fourscore and seven years, allowed kidnapped African slaves to be bought and sold and counted for only three-fifths of a person for purposes of the census. Even though it was self-evident that all men are created equal. Up until about a year and a half ago, for almost 50 years, unborn American children, regardless of their color, sex, or any other consideration, they were, as a class of people, accorded essentially no rights at all. They're not even three-fifths of a person. And the inequities between persons goes on. Even in our world today, there are tenured professors and non-tenured instructors. There are salaried employees and there are contract workers. There are company owners and managers and workers. In the military, there are the general officers, the field-grade officers, the company-grade officers, the warrant officers, NCOs, and privates. Across the whole of society, there's this social structure with a relational depth and richness that gives this commandment ample room to operate and ample room to bless these relationships. For those who understand and keep it, good soldiers learn early on, you don't salute the man you salute the office, the office he holds. On this topic, I commend to your reading the Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 123 to 133, all of which are devoted to explaining and applying this fifth commandment. Now, 
I've been talking a long time, and all of this is simply to say that in point of fact, we do and we must discriminate between men. God himself does. He says, for instance, that those who teach incur a stricter judgment. This fifth commandment establishes for us this social framework of office. Whom are we to honor? We honor those God sit over us in the home, of course, but also those in the wider household and economy of society. We call them office holders. God, our Redeemer, wills that superior and inferior and those of equal station in life that we know how to bless and be blessed according to our providential placement in the social fabric. It's part of getting along. Now let's stop and think for a moment, really, what a wonderful thing this is. That we can rightly discriminate among men as God discriminates. Can you imagine the transformation of the academic world or the world of government or of labor and management? And yes, marriages and families in every level of human endeavor, when in Christ we are resolved to honor and bless one another according to our respective stations in life. We're not apt to recognize the world anymore once Christ redeems all of our relationships, beginning in, but not limited to, the home. We come finally to the outlook for human society when we understand not only its God-given structure, beginning in the home, but also how we might properly honor one another within that structure according to our respective stations in life. What might be expected, for instance, when parents in the home lovingly train and feed and care for their children, and children, in turn, honor their parents? What a home that must be. When masters give up threatening and servants do their work heartily as unto the Lord. When civil magistrates no longer lord it over those they serve, but see themselves as ministers of God for the punishment of evildoers and the reward of those who do well. When citizens are subject to the governing authorities God has placed over them. The outlook for that society in which the law of God and the Spirit of God are at work, the outlook for that society is blessing. The outlook is long life and prosperity. We need those whom God has wisely set over us and around us. When we honor them, when we heed their good counsel, that honor will tend to prolong our days 
It goes well with us whenever God, wherever God providentially places us. But I began with a warning about these commandments. They take us in one of only two directions, remember? If you step into the commandment alone, without the benefit of Jesus Christ and his obedience, if you do that, the weight of your own transgressions pulls you quickly and hopelessly down the track in a direction you don't want to go. The Christian use of the commandments is, first of all, to show us our own sins, but then also to show us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who to his final dying breath kept them with all his heart and soul. This commandment, as it was first inscribed upon tablets of stone, read, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged, and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Generation after generation, those very same words appeared, not in stone necessarily, but in ink, upon countless Torah scrolls that were used in countless synagogues, across the Mediterranean world. One of those scrolls, one of them, was used to feed the souls of a synagogue in Nazareth of Galilee during the reigns of emperors Augustus and Tiberius. Jesus attended services there from his earliest days, from his boyhood, And what he learned upon the scroll in his synagogue stayed with him as he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. It stayed with him to the very last day of his life, the very last moment of his life. (coughs) I think it's worth noticing that virtually the final act of our Lord Jesus Christ before expiring on the cross, his final act was to care for his mother. Joseph apparently at this point was gone by now. All Jesus' brothers are still held in the grip of their pre-resurrection unbelief. So to whom should he, as the eldest son, the firstborn, to whom should he entrust his own mother's future care? I think it's an astounding thing that such a consideration as honoring his mother should even cross the mind of a man who is undergoing the throes, the sufferings of crucifixion. And it not only crosses his mind, but it's clear that he's given it due consideration and thought. My mother will not be left alone. She won't be left destitute. She won't be left without the consolation and grace of Christian fellowship. Certainly not at this dark, tragic moment of her life. And so from the cross, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. 
He's not talking about himself up here on the cross. He's talking about the disciple whom he loved, John. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her, took Mary, into his own household. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you. That's the commandment. And could Jesus have been, could there have been a more loving way for Jesus to finish his life so well lived in every respect? Could he have made a better decision as to the future care of this aging woman entrusted to his care? Could Jesus have placed a more pronounced accent upon this commandment to honor your father and your mother? It is his hearty obedience, reckoned to us by faith, that secures for us, as it did for Mary, a future and a hope. It's his obedience, reckoned to us by faith, that prolongs our days and makes it go well with us. It's his obedience reckoned to us by faith that will, on the last great day, carry us all the way up the hill to glory. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word, and the deeper and the longer that we study it, the more we see its cohesiveness, the cohesiveness of law and testimony. We are so grateful for the many examples that we see of the obedience, the perfect, unwavering, unintermittent obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ to the full commandment. We ask, O Lord, that you would enable us to honor our mothers and our fathers, to honor those whom you have placed over us, Many of us think back on our own biological mothers and fathers with great gratitude. We are warmed at the memories and by the memories of those we no longer have with us. Others of us are still wrestling within about our broken and troubled relationship with parents who are indeed sinners, as all men are, But we ask that you would give us an extra measure of grace to be obedient and loving sons and daughters to these parents that we understand really so little. We ask that you would give us that grace to be forgiving as you are forgiving and that we might remember our place, which is by grace alone, at your table as your children adopted through faith. Help us to honor you through the honoring of those you have placed over us in the Lord. It is not in our power so to do, so we ask for the strength and help of your Spirit that you might be glorified and we might be blessed. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.